Welcome to Did You Know, the podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the executives of colour who have led the way in the UK music business. Today, we're in conversation with Aaron Hercules, manager, football agent, and A&R man amongst his many talents. In this episode, we talk about his time working in London record stores, working with incredible US talent, family A&R, and the nurturing of young talent and his hopes for the future. You can't really go to a uni or to a college to learn what we learn. There's no books or anything that's going to tell you that. You just have to experience it and learn from it and then, and then progress. However, as with all our guests, we like to ask why they chose the music industry. Here's what Aaron had to say when we asked him. I guess the family were a very musical family, mainly because my brother was in the band with Billy Ocean. And then my neighbours was Mikey from Culture Club. So I kind of watched the whole formation of Culture Club play out in front of me pretty much because we lived on the same street. So our street in West London was uh, yeah, very musical. And then a few doors down was Rap Attack, as we all know, went on to do some amazing house parties and stuff. So I guess it was a destined for me to, to be involved. And I kind of wanted to find out more about it and get into the nitty gritty of how songs were made and what musicians played on what. So, yeah, that's kind of how I got into it, really. So it was preordained. I mean, you know, the location and the magic around you was the thing that kind of fueled you and drove you to being a part of the stories that you saw being played out in front of you on a daily basis, which is incredible. Definitely. Um, it was insane just seeing fans in throws out, you know, across the road from my front door trying to... Um, get to Mikey and the rest of the, the guys at Culture Club. So yeah, it was something, really was. And then I decided to join a band, but we won't go into that. <laughs> no, we, no, 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 you know we will, Mr. Hercules. You know we will, because you and I have known each other for a long time. We shared some fun together. We shared success together. You've been a publisher. You've worked in distribution. You've done club promotion. You've manager, football agent. And we're going to talk about all of those. But your first job was working in a record store, which is the, the path that a lot of our friends took to kind of get into the business. So how did that come about? And what was your time there like? So um, a dear friend of mine's uh, goes by the name of Dark Man, but a.k.a. Brian. He, um, Brian. he was like, I really want to set up a shop. His mum had a hairdresser, so he wanted to do something next door to it. And um, we were like, well, it was in the basement, actually. And um, yeah, he was like, this, this is what I want to do. So he spoke to me and he spoke to Jerv. And at the time, I was fascinated about music and the actual process of making a record, the artwork, everything. So I said, yeah, I'd love to. Um, this was in Goldhawk Road in um, Shepherd's Bush. And yeah, literally the idea was to bring across to the DJs, like the Norman Jays uh, of this world, to get them to come to the shop and let them see what we were selling. They would go out to the US and pick up the various vinyls. And it was only vinyl, by the way, we were selling. And we'd bring it back to the UK and they were called cutouts. So they would be hidden in a warehouse with dust all over them. 
because what was working in the US wasn't generally working here. So we would be going on about an album, whether it's Don Blackman or whoever, and they would be like, <laughs> don't know what you're talking about. So we would just lap it up. <laughs> we would just lap it up and um, bring it to Vinyl Lab and sell. And boy, it's crazy. Insane, absolutely insane. Yeah, I mean, those days of the cutout were remarkable. I mean, for true collectors, it was the only way you could find those real rarities. I mean, I mean, you talk about digging in the crates. I mean, that was more like digging in warehouses to kind of find those gems. Yeah, definitely. And boy, did we find them. <laughs> oh, man, listen, I mean, there was some, some great records that go down there. And I know I was buying tunes from your shop as well. But from there, you, uh, you also worked at Black Market as well, right? Yeah. So I did Vinyl Lab and then I did Goldalt Records, which is a distribution shop. So there's a guy called Abby and myself. We would be on the phone. The legendary yeah. Abby. The legendary Abby. They used to work at Bluebird back in the That's vote. right. And then we would be on the phone and they would literally play the first minute or so of a song and we would have to say the quantity that we needed. So we kind of had to know what was happening at the time and what would sell. And then we would head off to the airport and pick up our orders. And you'd be, yeah, you'd be amazed on what people bought based on the artwork of a record rather than just... Give us some examples. Give us some examples of the things that people were buying around that time and the, the tracks that were kind of really blowing up. Um, so... The example I can give regarding the artwork was um, Ice-T. <laughs> and I don't know if you remember it, but it's, uh, <laughs> it was, I think it was his girlfriend at the time. And she was, yeah, let's say she didn't have... Scantily clad. Okay. She was scantily clad. You said it. You said it. <laughs> Scant scantily clad. And then they did an embossed braided thing. So you would run your hands along the, the cover and it would outline the whole image. So for me, I didn't see that before. So we literally brought that back from the airport and as soon as it was racked up and displayed, people were just buying it. Um, obviously some people knew what was the album was about, but a lot of people just took it for the artwork. Love the artwork. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just love the artwork. And there was quite a lot of records like that, to be fair. But that was one that I remember pretty well. And then there were, yeah, there's other records at the time. We're going back quite a bit now, so memory's not that brilliant. But there were records, as I mentioned earlier, that like the Don Blackmans, Leroy Hudson's. I'm really interested. Working behind the counter is probably like, you know, obviously it's absolutely direct. You're seeing what people want firsthand, and that's what's going to shape probably what, in some cases, what A&Rs and record companies are, are trying to do and potentially shape a future. We've seen that consistently with the birth of different forms of music. I mean, during our times of the business, whether it be hip-hop, rap, house, whatever. What did you learn from your time working behind the counter that you found useful as you went through the business, as you started to make your way in the business? Well, it's funny you say that because um, with Black Market, we were kind of the forefront of modern music at the time so all the labels were situated in soho and that's where black market was so Rene, who run black market he decided to bring myself and steve jervier mickey d paul martin stafford a few of us over because he had a plan of replicating what larry levan did in new york so you had a dj in the shop just mixing and djing all day and then the customers will tell us 
they want that song or they want that track. Um, and it worked out really well. And we were also the shop to go to to find out what's popping and what's going. So the different labels would come by and just hang around and just see what people were buying. And um, for myself, it was interesting because you had two situations. You just had the great tracks that everyone loved and you kind of knew, okay, this formula and this format works. So that's why everyone's jumping on board. But then you also had, so Frankie Fonset was in the shop and he was mixing <laughs> and he would be mixing, but he would mix a certain part of the song. And I would stand next to him dealing with the customers and the customer would say, I want that one. And I would be like, cool. <laughs> and they'll have a pile of records. But then a few days later, they'll come back and they'll say, oh, but this is not the track that I heard. And I said, it is. And they said, no, it isn't. I said, it definitely is. But you heard it in a mix. So that's probably what you're getting confused with. And they were like, oh, okay, sorry, sorry. So, because he would choose the part that worked best to interact the next song into the mix, you know? Record shops were great at doing that back in the day. And there was a particular shop in Hoban who had a guy behind the counter, Dave, over at City Sounds. Dave, who was the manager there, was incredible at playing just the right piece of music to get you, the right part of the song to get you really excited. And trust me, I mean, there were more than a few occasions where I got stuff home, put it on my turntable and thought, this isn't there. I've been yeah. done. Yeah, this, this, isn't this, the isn't, this is this isn't yeah. the truth. But you know, it was a great sensation. But I mean, that was your formative years in the business, right? That was really your start and your first rung on the ladder. Hundred percent. That was definitely the start for me, and it was a great start because I saw that as the core, really. Because you're hearing the music before the customers and deciding on what's going to work and, and what doesn't. So, and hence why the labels came by to just see what was working and what wasn't. So. For me, that was the very, very beginning of a long and great journey. And from Black Market, you then went on to work with one of the greats in the business and one of the great labels at the time as well. It was really popping, right? Yeah, Champion Records, Mr. Mel Medalli. <laughs> yes. yes, what a character. Absolutely. Yeah, that was, I guess for me, that was kind of where I got to do a bit of everything. From A&R in, a bit of A&R in, a bit of club promotion which is outsourced a lot these days, but this was all done in-house. And then I had to deal with the retail side and marketing because it's a small company. Yeah. So everyone had to muck in and get things done. And as I was joining, Paul Oakenfall was leaving. So I kind of got to do a little bit with him. But yeah, it was, it was amazing. Really exciting times for me. It was fresh. I mean, we're talking about Teddy Riley on the record B-Fats, like a lot of people may not know that record, but that was one of his early records that we did. Because what Champion did was they licensed records from the US that they felt would work in our territory and then build from there. And then eventually he'll get to a point where he'll sign artists directly, but initially his main core business was licensing from the US. I mean, I've got to say, I mean, I remember around about that time, I mean, of all those labels, Champion were really at the forefront of some of the most exciting yeah, music, and as you say, a different spectrum. I mean, obviously, I mean, people remember them for great Todd Terry records, great house records, obviously, when Paul Oakenfold were there. But they forget that there was a lot of really great black music that they did as well. That, excuse the pun, they championed, because I mean, you guys were very much kind of out there putting music out that people wanted but couldn't get. And you were quick on it. You guys were great. 
No, we were. We were really quick. And he would shout and scream <laughs> if, if we weren't. So we had to be on our A game and we had to be out there and we had to know what was happening. And those days we didn't have internet or social media. So your skill set was real. You had to be in there big time. When you kind of look back on that, are there things that you kind of still use now from that skill set that you've taken and adapted that you use to this day? And if so, what are they? That's a good question. You definitely take a lot of that with you, even though the format is, is different. But ultimately, you have to have ears. You have to know if a song is working or not. The club promotion side is, for dance records, as far as I'm concerned, is still an important thing. So those areas is what I took with me, knowing that, because I applied it down the line with the architect's record, whereby the club route was key. So for me, that's still important. Obviously, we lost that during lockdown. Yeah. But for me, if you have that type of record and what Champion was doing, club promotion was key in a big way. There's something else that I think is also important in those areas, which is being brave. Because a lot of people today rely on data. They rely on the facts in front of them to kind of go, okay, this has got a chance. There was a real element of bravery about kind of doing what you guys were doing back in the day in terms of signing those records. Because you were literally listening, kind of going, I like this. I think it's got a chance. I need to act before anybody else. And that sense of kind of natural instinct, good ears, just kind of going, you know what, I'm going to kind of put myself out there with a leap of faith is... Potentially something that I'm speaking to a couple of people within the business now, they feel has been lost to a certain extent. Do you think that's fair? 100% I think that's lost. Because when I heard Ray's Break for Love, I was like, mate, this is a, <laughs> this is a tune and a half. So, yeah, I, you know, we literally had to go from what we heard on our instinct. But I think people's got lazy and they basically have all this infrastructure around them, like the data to help pinpoint certain songs that are doing really well or having a bit of a viral moment. But for me, the real rock and roll business is, yeah, you need to listen to a song, understand it and decide if it's something that you feel you can take to the next level. This is really, and, and then apply all the things around it that that record needs. That's for me, you know, it's really important. So that, to answer your question, yeah, it's definitely change. And I think people have got lazy and data is kind of taking over, really. That's interesting. I mean, once you left there, and I'm really just to find out why you left there, but I think when your next path, career path, was probably the time where your path and my path probably crossed for the first time. And again, you know, you've been lucky. You kind of work, left one really interesting, legendary kind of movement, slightly smaller. But the next chapter was incredibly interesting, incredibly empowering, but also for you must have been highly formative as well. Yeah, the next chapter was a big one for me. And as you said, that's kind of when our paths definitely crossed. And it's because of a dear friend of ours, knew that I was at Champion and, and working in different areas and covering different aspects of putting music out and marketing and so forth. So our dear friend Trenton Harrison Lewis said to me, look, I'm setting up Rush Management for Europe. And obviously, you know that the artists and the clientele that was under that 
banner. So he was like, yeah. I'm going to set this up. Do you want to come and, and work with me? And I said, hell fucking yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, wow, that was a journey. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I don't even know where to start on that one. Well, let's start at the beginning because, you know, first of all, we should talk about, listen, Trent has been on here and he's spoken about some of the artists there, but yeah, we should shout out those artists again. For people who haven't listened to the Trent and Harrison Lewis episode, please go back and listen to it because he is one of the legends of our business. But, you know, you were part of that journey with him with some other of our good friends at the time as well. Yeah. So, you know, it'd be really interesting to kind of shout the artists out, tell us what you were doing and tell us what you took from that and what it felt like being in that environment. Well, it's um, the environment was great because it was just it's a small team. It was just me, Trenton, Yvonne, and Pat, and Pat was the accountant. So it was a real interesting combination of people within there. <laughs> and on the other end, we had Leo Cohen and Russell Simmons as our bosses, so to speak, because they Rush Management was born in New York. So, wow. So we, from the UK side, we had an artist like Silver Bullet, which Clive Black signed oh, at EMI. And then, Silver I know, Bullet. I know many people, I don't know how I remember that one, but I did. I have no idea where you pulled that uh, one from. That was, that was probably from the back of the tracks, <laughs> yeah. mate. I've not heard that name from, for the longest oh, time. Man. We had Technotronic, Pump Up The Jam, which is a big record for us, and toured with Madonna around the world and then obviously the us from ll tribe called quest run dmc big daddy kane allison williams jazzy jeff and the fresh prince did i say well there's other artists that you know pe you forgot public you enemy. Jesus, how can I forget public enemy yeah. yeah you've got to say pe as well enemy. and did i say de La? No, but you know, you have now. <laughs> <laughs> um, man, it's the roster was insane, insane. Um, what I learned from that was that moving forward, never have a roster of 30 to 40 artists. There's just not enough time in a day to deal with them all. And unfortunately, the top six to top 10 got dealt with in a sense that attention was paid and the rest just you know, fell off the wayside. I remember one day I was in New York and King's son came into the office on Elizabeth Street. And on the board, it had a tour. And I think it was uh, a tribe called Quest tour. And he was looking to see his name anywhere and he didn't. And he just rubbed it all off and put King's son in bold capital letters. So all the people that were working just had nothing to work from because they would reference the board to see what was going on. <laughs> and then he just came and just wiped it all off. So yeah, we, we knew he wasn't happy. Um, but um, so for me, it was like, okay, our responsibility was to take these artists and build a career for them in Europe. That's kind of one of our main things that we had to do as well as facilitate releases, work with the various labels that these acts were signed to. So Public Enemy was, was Sony. My marketing guy was Rob Stringer. I know. So I would have meetings with Rob about Public Enemy as marketing. So that gives you an idea of how long it was. Yeah. And then, yeah, we were basically responsible for that. So 
It was hard because the American artists, all they think about is their country. And I understand this is a huge, you know, 52 states is massive. So I had to convince them that if you came to Europe, you would pretty much double your money and double your sales, et cetera, et cetera. So it took me a while to get that to them, but I remember doing it with Dela with Three Feet High and Rising, and um, they were like, okay, Aaron, we hear what you're saying, we'll come, but on these rules. So I had to, when we get into Europe, whether it's Germany, Italy, wherever, I had to let the media people know that we can't have a schedule with various different publications in different locations. I said, what you have to do, right. we just find a room within a hotel and bring all the publications there. And then they can ask all the questions. I said, and then it will happen. Otherwise, it ain't gonna happen. So they were a bit flustered about it. And, oh, and I said, well, that's the only how it's gonna work. These guys are not going to. And bearing in mind, you would have to do this around tour dates. So they've done a show. They're not going to answer any phone or knocks on the door in the hotel to come and do press. They're not interested. So I had to make it work so that when I knew they would be up, that we would then instigate all these interviews. And all the publications sat in the same room. So for me, that was, uh, that was something that they liked and appreciated. And then once they saw the sales increase, they realized, you know what? We need to be here more often. And obviously the crowd was appreciative because, you know, these are coming from America and, and, and the buzz that they came with was, was huge. So that was one of the situations. And then we had other dramas, which we could be here all day. Um, <laughs> Man, listen, it was rush artists. So, you know, we all know when you're dealing with artists in a certain environment, it always comes with a great story at the end of it. It may not feel like it at the time, but it always the story is always a great one when you look back on them in years to come. But, you know, I always find that, and I'm sure you did. I mean, those moments working with those artists with a different mindset, a different set of objectives, a different set of ambitions. I learned a lot from working with the American artists that I did and about how to do my job. Do you find that was also the same as well, kind of, for you working at Rush? Yeah, definitely. It's, there's a lot that you, that you learn as you progress. Because I always say to people, you can't really go to a uni or to a college to learn what we learn because you have to experience it that you know you have to go through it in real time and for me it was literally you learn one thing one day and then you know not to do it the next day and it was literally like that whereas you can't there's no books or anything that's going to tell you that you just have to experience it and learn from it and then and then progress and there was a time obviously where that journey came to an end not going to go into that and what happened, but at that point, what did you think was going to be your next move? I mean, all, had that already been decided for you? It was such a, a great time and great experience and learned so much and spent time traveling back and forth. So I guess for me, it was like, okay, maybe I should try. I don't know. I was trying to be a bit brave here, but maybe I should try and, and do my own thing. So kind of, it was like, okay, you know, you've learned significant amount from working with Rush and the previous jobs that I had. So I was like, okay, let me try and go solo. <laughs> was that not a scary time? Because looking, I'm trying to think back to that time. I mean, I'm trying to remember the amount of 
black managers or that were out there at that particular point, or even consultants. I mean, you know, back in what would have been the what the early nineties. Yeah. So we're probably talking about Trenton, obviously. Yep. Trenton's always flown solo yep. and been out there and been the champion for that. Jackie Davison, of course, the legendary Jackie Davison yep. was probably was another. Yep. I'm sure there are a few others whose names escape. But you know, in management was never seen to be the domain of black executives or black professionals in our business. I mean, we always seem to work inside the corporation for the most part. Did you never feel that you wanted to work for a record company or a pub company? It actually, as an employee, was it always something that you wanted to fly solo? No, I would love to have worked or consult with a label publishing. And I did a short stint of the publishing side of things with Polygram Music, it was at the time. They were based in, in Hammersmith. So I did that stint with Lucian Grange and Colin Barlow was also part of the team. It might have been Colin that brought me in. But anyway, I would sit and, and talk to Lucian and go through what I think is happening and what's not and what I think he should be publishing. So one of the things that I brought to them at the time was the Dirty Cash song by Stevie V. And that was a big record at the time. Yeah, massive record. And they signed it and so forth. So yeah, Lucian, you owe me some money. Joking, joking. <laughs> so um, listen, he's not short, right? He's not short. I'm sure I'm sure he'll be able to pony up. It's not it's not gonna be a problem for him. No. But yeah, so I just thought I'm young, so why not give it a shout, you know? Um didn't have major responsibilities at that time. So for me it was just like, if you're gonna do anything like this, now's the time to do it. But you're right, there weren't many black managers out there uh, at that time. So I thought I'll give it a shot. And no, you know. I don't remember anyone knocking, saying, Aaron, come over here. I didn't, you know. So for me, it was just like, just go for it. Have a shot at it. So you start Bermuda Management, right? Which is your first foray into management. And I think you've done okay, mate. I mean, it did okay. So, you know, I mean, there's some nice success stories there. So we should big up those success stories and, you know, let our listener know exactly how that played out for you. Oh, yeah, it, it, um, it played out pretty well. I um, got to work with some in incredible talent. The names changed a couple of times, but it started out at that. So I was working with the likes of Hill Street Soul, who is still going to this day. Yeah. And um, phenomenal singer, great writer. And she, yeah, she, she really did well. The US was, I would say, was more her market. So we toured there a lot. She had some success in the US Billboard R&B charts, singles and album. And we went on tour with Spike Lee. <laughs> really? Yeah, to support, he did, didn't do many. He, he would do a tour based on the film that he had at that time. And um, yeah, went all over Europe, absolutely brilliant. And we had, trying to remember, but we had Bilal with us, Terence Blanchard, who done all his oh. scores for his music, for all the movies. And he had his quartet, so it was a full string section, as well as a band. So it was a full on orchestra. And then I was trying to think of who else. There was a couple other people, but yeah, unbelievable, unbelievable. It's chilling. <laughs> what a great experience. Yeah, sitting on a plane, talking to Spike Lee. It was just yeah. a bit surreal, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it was, it was unbelievable. So yeah, Terry Walker, Again, still to this day. She's still out there doing yeah. it. Still out there doing it and doing it and doing, and it, doing really it really well. well. Escoffrey sisters. Michelle kind of embarrassed me a little bit at Glastonbury the other week because 
she was hosting the PRS stage and uh, I had an artist, Tara Lily, performing on that stage. And yeah, she announced, before she announced Tara, she <laughs> said, by the way, we have a mutual thing. And she said, Aaron Hercules managed me. And now he manages Tara. So I was like, oh God. <laughs> so yeah, this discoveries were good. It's nice to see that kind of, that lineage continue though, yeah. right? That journey, the line is never broken. No. It just kind of, you just dropped the rope occasionally. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we did, we did. And Scoffrices were amazing. And then I did a stint working with McLean. Um, that was signed over at Atlantic with Ben Cook. So yeah, that was um, was good. We had the top 10 and, and so forth. So he did really well. And then I guess one of the projects that I really... Um, how can I put it? Well, I kind of brought tears to my eyes. When I, the journey there and, and how it happened was architects. At that point, we were in a, a period where garage music was literally dominating everything. And to be fair, it's still running to this day. So myself and Paul Samuels, who's over at Warner's, we literally sat down with the guys and they played us some music. We loved them. We went to the dairy in, in Brixton and recorded that song. I'm not ashamed to say that that song probably cost about 300 pounds, if that. So you should say what that song is, because there might be people out there that don't know that song. Well, that song is Body Groove by Architects. Big tune. And we had a few songs, and it was that and Show Me The Money. And at the time, I had it on cassette, and I gave it to my daughter and she, I said to her, when you go to school, I'll be intrigued to know what your mates and everyone thinks of this song. So when you get a moment, whenever it is, playtime, whatever. So anyway, she brought it to school <laughs> and um, played both songs. But Body Groove is the one that they were going crazy about. And I said, really? And she said, dad, they were literally dancing everywhere. So, okay, so I went back to the guys, to, to Trey and uh, Ashley, and I uh, said, look, this is, the, this is the one. So they were like, cool, we'll go with it. I said, look, I've got someone that we spoke to a few people. We've got someone that could distribute the record for us. I had a friend in Balham who had a plant, a pressing plant uh, named Deep. So I went to him and he said, okay, I'll, I'll press it up. He said, by the way, it's a good song, Aaron. I said, well, yeah, it's okay. So, <laughs> so we, so Paul Barron, um, I think the company was PDC. He decided to take it on board to distribute it. But prior to giving it to him, I said, "Look, Ashley doesn't like the MCing bit, so he would like to get someone else to do it." And he said, "What do you mean? Are you mad?" And I said, "Well, I don't know, but he just feels maybe we should look at one of the more established MCs to jump on the record." Because bearing in mind, this is their first record. They've never had anything out there. Yeah. We've had a remix out there, Brandon Monica remix, but that's it. So he, he was like, no, 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 no. Keep, keep, keep him on it. And I said, all right, I'm going to do my best. But there's people auditioning as we speak to jump on this record. So he said, do not change it, Aaron. Anyway, so we pressed out the record. We gave him. I said to him, I can give you 500. He wanted 2,000. I said, I'm not having all these records back at, in my house and trying to find a place to put them. I'm not having that. He said, no, no, I'm going to sell them. I was like, yeah, right. So I gave him 500. During that time, I 
decided to hit up and uh, I think it was Shabs at the time, Media Village. I'm trying to remember, but I think it was. Yeah, it would, would have been Shabs at Media Village, yeah? Um, they were doing the, the, um, the promotion for it. And my thing was to just get it out to all the pirate stations, what we call community stations now, but the pirate stations. So we circulated it to them. We gave the 500 record to the um, distributor and then I went on holiday. <laughs> so uh, come back from holiday and with the missus and my phone was just full of messages and I was like and it wouldn't take any more and I was like why is my phone full of so I started to play the messages and um it's crazy every label you publisher just one of my mates said I'm surprised people didn't swim out <laughs> to get you and I said what do you mean he said because I knew you were in one of the Canary Islands but everyone wanted to know how they can get to you because I turned my phone off because yeah when, well you would know Adrian if you go away yeah you, yeah uh, yeah 100% mate your, give your attention to to the lady so um, yeah, 100% mate I said to them oh wh why they said Aaron it's gone mad like every radio station's playing this etc etc et I was like oh wow okay so Baron, Paul Baron was just on my phone like, I need 5,000. Anyway, I kept feeding him, feeding him with um, vinyl. And he was, as, as much as I was giving it to him, he was selling out. And yeah, it was just crazy how this thing just started to explode. So then I had the obvious labels calling me. I had meetings. And I remember going to one of the labels and they were like, yeah, we'll give you X. Um, it's okay, but we, you know, we, we think we're able to do something with it. And I said, okay, it's fine. I'm good. And I said, well, what do you mean? And I was like, well, what you're offering me, I make that just on a few cells on vinyl. So it's fine. No, no, no. But I said, no, we, we can talk another time. So I left them. And then, yeah, it just got a bit mad. It just got so mad that I had to do something. So I said, okay. So Ferdy was one of the labels that called me and said, Aaron, I need this record. So we went in, we sat with him, spoke to us about it, told us what he'd already been doing. So he already had a few records in that genre, because as I said, the garage thing was really popping off. So, and I've met Freddie before, and we always got on. So I was like, cool, let's do it. That upset a lot of people. And we won't go into, into that chapter, because there's a few people that know that chapter, but it was a time where people, when a record was hot, it was important for them to have it. And this record was very hot at the time. So everyone wanted to have it. And I just chose to go with Ferdy on it. I just felt that he would do a good job and he understood the record. The, more importantly, the artist liked him. So for me, it makes sense to do it. So we agreed a deal and we did it. And then I did the publishing deal with Guy and uh, Sarah Lockhart. Well, she was over at so EMI Publishing, but I think she's moved now. So yeah, so that's kind of the, the pattern of what went on. And then the record went on to enter the charts at number three and sold over 500,000 copies. And these are actual, we didn't have streaming. So these were actual sales. Physical, Physical copies. copies. Yeah, yeah, these, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of the things that people forget. One thing that I'm really interested in that story, Aaron, is the bit early on where... You've got a record that is clearly unbelievably hot. There are labels calling you, but the offer that you're getting doesn't actually equate to the kind of success you're getting or values the product that you have. Very true. 
how did that make you feel? I mean, do you think that's a byproduct of the scene it was coming from and people not understanding or not valuing it or just they didn't understand? I think they, they didn't understand the value and the impact that it had on the culture at that time. And I guess it still is. It was something that I wish that I had done ourselves, like me and the guys, if we just kept it ourselves and just did a distribution deal, we would be having a different conversation now. <laughs> yeah, no, this, I'm sure. But, you know, I think it's, you know, we all live and learn. You know, I think back then, and this is where, you know, we can talk about the differences of where things have moved on to, you know, in what the 25, 30 years since that point, where, you know, if we look now in a different scene, but, you know, with the same kind of aesthetics, these guys are going, we value what we have and we're not giving it away because they've learned what that means. It's fair to say, I think, and people don't realise it, we didn't have that back in the day. There was a real culture of you made a record and what you want to do is maximise its potential as soon as possible because you didn't know what might happen to it because if someone's going to offer you a deal, that was great because that gave you the chance to kind of go on to the next stage. And I don't think we were as, and listen, this is all of us, I don't think we were as business savvy as we could have been at that particular point in time. That's very true. Yeah, that's fair? No, that's that's so fair. We were just happy to, I won't say happy, but we were just like, okay, we want this to work and we want it to build this brand. So we just felt at that time, labels were the right place to do that. I'm talking for myself. I didn't have that business savvy to think, oh, maybe I should retain this and keep this as our own thing. It was just about wanting to get the product out there and for it to do well. And yeah, on this occasion, it did extremely well. I mean, we got a Lucozade advert the other day. It's crazy. I mean, I think one caveat to that that we should add there, that wasn't a black thing. That was, I think, managers in general, you know, they had a record, they signed it on because I don't think anybody thought that long term because it was a very transactional process. I've got something, you want it, right, let's do a deal, let's move on, and we'll move on to the next one. And I don't think anybody thought about five, ten years down the line retaining rights if we hold on to the publishing, what does that mean? If I own 100% of this, how much more am I going to earn if I'm owning it as opposed to getting a royalty from it? If those things, when I them, probably weren't really explained to us. And these guys, I think, now are definitely a lot more well-rounded in a lot of cases than probably a lot of us were back then when we were starting out. No, that's very true. Um, the younger generation, and I'm always here to help that generation coming through, but they definitely are more savvy and they've watched and just seen what's gone on and understood various things so i think this, that's a good thing that's a really good thing yeah it's great to they've learned from our mistakes yes. and they're, they're earning the money so yeah we'd like some of your money please because we gave it all up years ago <laughs> thank you <laughs> one of the things that yeah i've always loved about you as well is because you've never stood still aaron i mean you've always kind of moved and you've kind of looked in different areas and the two things that i've looked on with a certain sense of kind of kind i nearly did that i nearly did one of them Clearly, I have a love of football, which everybody knows. But, you know, you went off and became a football agent. Yeah. For a minute. And I remember I looked at doing that for a minute when I talked to a very prominent England international at the time. And I remember walking away from a meeting going, this world is like the Wild West. I ain't getting involved. So my question to you is, what made you go the other way and actually become an agent? Yeah, that's a really good question. Because I remember you, you were asking me at the time and I was saying to you, please stay far away from this industry as you can. <laughs> yeah. 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 I thought you were just saying it because you wanted to be the only one no, in there. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. It, it, I'm joking, uh, man. I'm joking, man. <laughs> it made the music industry look like child's play. It's 
I love football and always have done and played a little bit, but nothing to write home about. So I was like, okay, the music industry has become an industry for accountants, meaning that it wasn't rock and roll as how I knew it. It was just about figures. And I was just bored with that. And I was just like, nah. So I was told that you can go and do an exam and you don't have to pay this bond that you used to back in the day of 30, 40, 50 grand. You just did the exam and then you paid your admin fees and then that was it. So I was like, oh, okay. I love the game. I knew one or two guys who came from music to being an agent and his name escapes me, but he left the music industry and then he went to manage Frank Lampard. Um, Steve Cutler. Steve Cutler, there you go. And I was like, okay. So a few people have done it. Why not? So a dear friend of mine's, Daryl LaVictoire and myself, we decided to take the exam. But during that time, I was coaching my son's team from he was, I don't know, six. And he was playing for a team in, in South London. And he played for that team right until he was like 16, 15, 16. So I then went on to do some badges coaching badge i just love the game you were serious, yeah, serious. Yeah. so then we said all right let's go even though we knew the pass rate for the exams was five percent so i thought i got no chance but i thought why not i got nothing to lose so i did the exam and um i passed <laughs> i was like what <laughs> so at that point i was fortunate that i had friends one or two friends of mine were already in the industry and had players, but didn't have a license. So what I found is that pretty quickly, I would get various people saying to me, Aaron, look, I've heard you've got a license. Could you help me on this deal? Um, yeah. And so forth. And then what I did with one of my colleagues was just started to build up a repertoire of, of clients, of players, mainly young players that were coming through and one or two that are at academies. And then slowly just built my way through that way. And then I ended up building relationships with various clubs. And I think it worked for me at the time because I wasn't a threat to other agents. They just saw me as a music guy dabbling a little bit in football. And for me, it was just like, I'm taking, transferring my skill sets from managing an artist that performed on the stage to managing a player that, performed on a football pitch but the requirements were pretty similar you know yeah so i said okay let's go for it and yeah and that i did one of the questions i wanted to ask you was are those skills transferable is there a, a distinct kind of correlation between the player that steps on the pitch on a saturday and the artist that steps on the stage on a saturday night what's the difference in how you're handling them and what you're doing because obviously the one thing we know the deals are completely different but what is it the man management how's that work I just think the difference between the two is just that one performs on a stage and the other's on a pitch because the requirements that both need are the same because you have players, yes, you have to tell an artist whether their, their performance was good or not good and the things that worked for them while they were performing and songs that work best and set lists and so forth. And it's the same with the player. You discuss with him what's working best for him as a player in the position that he plays, whether he's a midfield, left back, goalkeeper, striker, whatever. It's the same conversation you're having and you're there for them. And it's the same with the artists. And you also 
have the same problems that you'll have an artist get situation, your phone will be ringing two, three in the morning, same with the player. He'd have a situation, your phone will be ringing in the early hours of the morning because he's, he's got a situation that you have to deal with and rectify. So the only difference is the contracts. The contracts really were, they were pretty poor compared to what I'm used to as working with uh, in the record industry. We have 60 to 90 page contracts, publishing, recording. The players representation agreement between you and them is just two pages and they're free to do what they want. So you're not protected in any shape or form. Um, whereas with the artist situation, yeah, you're protected because you have a proper management agreement and you have post terms as well. That doesn't exist in football. Following on from New Works Football Agent, one of the things I was really interested in is someone that I know you used to work with or you have worked with in the past, and that is Patrick Hutchinson. I mean, there's that iconic picture of him back in, I think it was 2020 or 2021. It'd be great if you could tell us a little bit more about that and how your association with Patrick came about and the work that you guys did together. The Patrick situation came about, as um, some people may or may not know, but he's family, so he's brother is married to my niece stephanie his brother is uh, okay Roy. i didn't know that yeah i didn't know yeah. that so what happened was i was at home and the missus was like there's someone going viral on facebook but i'm not sure it looks like patrick but i'm thinking why should it be patrick i'm not on facebook so i said to her let me have a look um and see and as soon as i saw the picture i said that's patrick she was like i know it i know it anyway we were organizing a big birthday celebration for him i don't want to get it wrong but i believe it was his 50th so i was speaking to his other half and i said look we should definitely look at doing this and um, by the way your old man has become famous so she laughed and said yeah it's just <laughs> a lot of stress and then fast forward to him coming back home and speaking to her and she said oh, i've just been on the phone to aaron and he said ah oh, uncle i need uncle I know he knows this world in the entertainment. He used to look after Conor Maynard and all these other people. So I need him to help me. So he calls me and says, every media out there is all over him and it's just too much for him. And he has a friend that's been helping, but it would be good if I can come on board and help. Right. And I said, Look, I'm really busy, but your family. So of course I'll help. And literally from that day, I've never had an artist achieve that much in that short space of time. It was just, yeah, it was unbelievable. So this is the BLM demonstration. So there was a collective of them that were mates and Patrick, I think his name was Pierre. He um, reached out and said, look, we really want to go and protect our younger ones and make sure things are done correctly. So we want to go and do the right thing. So Patrick's like, well, I'm at home babysitting with my grandkids. So it'll be hard for me to go. Anyway, they convinced him to go and they all went up. And when they got there, yeah, there's a lot going on, quite a lot. So they were diffusing various situations that people may not be aware of because I guess that wasn't publicized as much. But there were different things going on that the youths were doing. Right. And in order for them not to get arrested and stuff, Patrick and his guys would go and 
and diffuse the situation and talk sense into them, so to speak. Yeah. And then moving from one part of where the protest was into another, that's when the inevitable happened. When Patrick was there with his lot and then the two entities came together, the left wing, which Brim was his name, was part of, and then our BLM movement people. And then for some reason, he ended up on the other side and Patrick just acted on impulse pretty much because he's generally that guy, like he is the nicest guy you'll meet. So he naturally just saw what was going on and in the split second decided, I need to get this guy out of this situation. And he literally just lifted him, put him on his shoulders and brought him to the police. Now, if you look at footage, you will see that it was a lot going on. And so for Patrick to enable himself to get in there to, to remove him was a task in itself. But the police were just standing there, really. So, so he brought him over, I should say. I mean, the photograph, I mean, is part of British black history folklore now. I mean, it is a really iconic image of, I mean, if I remember, Patrick is... He's topless and he's carrying, you know, he's got this guy draped over his shoulder, this white guy draped over his shoulder and moving him away. And it's that kind of role reversal. And, and the image, it's a great image because it's an image that needs no words. I think it says everything that it needs to say. Yeah, I think Al Shapton said the same thing when he did an interview with Patrick on This Morning. And he literally right. said, just the action said it all. Yeah, You didn't need to explain anything. It just said it all. Yeah, I mean, it's an incredible shot. But from that point on, Patrick obviously became a poster boy. It would be disrespectful to him. But clearly, there was a weight and a gravity to what he had to say and a real respectfulness and a deeper understanding of what he'd done. And there was the opportunity to kind of spread that word and spread that message, which you were a part of. He did that very well. Pretty much spoke to every media outlet around that time, every news channel. He won CNN Heroes, uh, Michelle Obama. That was one of her moments of the year and she spoke about it on her socials. And then we did a book deal, Everyone Versus Racism, which we did with HarperCollins. And then media, we had front cover of Men's Health, front cover of Vogue. Um, yeah, the list goes on. And then we did a conversation with Prince Harry, which was quite something. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible. And, you know, kind of moving on from there, you've not only worked in this area we have a collective history as we've lived it right and you know we've worked in an industry where together i mean a few of us have seen how the business has changed where do you see the business now compared to where it was when you kind of made your first kind of steps as a younger man into the uk music industry yeah it's changed <laughs> it's changed a lot because in my time we had vinyl cds dat players etc we're in a digital world now so it's a lot and i'm still learning it's changed in a sense that there's more of a platform for artists to be heard whether that's a good or a bad thing that's another conversation but um for an artist standpoint i guess it's changed for the better because there's i guess there's more outlet for them to be heard and it's changed for managers because there's no more demo budgets or development deals. <laughs> it's the managers have to develop artists before any label comes on board. So that, for me, that's changed. Some may argue, but I guess it's changed for the better only because of, as I said, because we're in a digital era now. And that helps in many ways. 
And when you look at, I mean, just you personally as an exec in the business and the way that has moved and the opportunity for people of colour, how do you think that has changed over the years? And what does that movement look like to you? Do you think we are in a more equitable place? It's made some progression. We've got a long way to go, I feel. It's kind of sad saying this, but I feel the goalposts has moved since George Floyd. I honestly think if that never happened, certain things wouldn't be taking place now. But I think as soon as that happened, certain doors opened for people of colour. We should expand on that quickly. So I think the recurring theme has always been that George Floyd, that historic, unprecedented, ugly moment in history has unquestionably changed people's attitudes and the way races looked at. But you say there have been changes. What changes have you seen? Um, I've seen more employment of people of colour and in higher positions within the industry. So that I've seen, because when I started, you can count them on one hand that we're in the industry. So definitely it has changed a bit, but it still has a way to go. When you look at that change, how much of a responsibility do you think that we as people of colour have to ensure that we are getting what we deserve? I've heard lots of conversations with people where they feel that they're not heard or that they don't make a noise because they feel they should be grateful for what they've got. How much of that should be a case of people actually kind of stand up going, hey, you know, we're not getting what we deserve here. That still needs a lot of work because, as you said, people are shouting and screaming and not getting heard enough. So that really needs to change. We can do our bit, but we need everyone to do their bit, really. But uh, we have to make sure that we do our bit and we continue because we can't stop. We have to continue. And that's something. What does that activism look like for you, Aaron? I mean, when you kind of go, we want to do our bit. What is that bit? Well, there's some of it going on as we speak with the various organisations, whether it's a black coalition, whether it's uh, I'm a board member of uh, ADD, whether it's these organisations coming together and fighting for that purpose. So that's one part of it I think is important and we have to bring it to the people in power to help make that change. It's kind of like unions, i.e. London Transport. They don't mess about. They literally say, this is what it's got to be. And if you don't do this, X is going to happen. And (laughs) so be it, it it happens. So (laughs) yeah, we don't have union in our industry. Maybe we should. You're right. There's not a union for execs in the music business, but there is the opportunity, as you say, within, with ADD, with the Black Music Coalition, for there to be kind of structured action. Would you advocate for that kind of much more robust kind of take on trying to force change? I definitely think that's needed, but I think we have to come together to do that. It's no point someone over in the corner over there doing their thing and another person in the other room doing something else. We have to come together to make it work because that way we make a louder voice. If we separate, then that voice becomes diluted or reduced, I should say. So we need to come together to make this change that's needed. Has there been conversations about 
there being a unified approach to trying to resolve this problem, trying to drive change and to force a different narrative in how to progress careers of executives of colour and giving them a much more equitable playing field. Yeah, we've had meetings with the other organisations and that's actively happening as we speak. I'm supposed to be on a call with everyone now, but I'm here. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm sorry to those who were no, all those no, people I'm, where he should be. I'm sorry, but we no, got joking, we got Aaron for a minute. <laughs> but no, that is actively happening, and we just have to keep pushing. We've done a big Zoom with all the various organisations, which was quite you know there were like I can't even remember thirty to fifty odd people on there. So right, it's happening. The change is happening, but we have to keep it moving really, and just don't stop until we've reached that goal. So are you hopeful that there is that kind of, I don't want to use the term promised land because, you know, obviously, you know, <laughs> this connotation it has, yeah. but there is that kind of horizon that can be reached and that there's a chance that, particularly during our time in this business, having a career, that it will be, that there's an opportunity for change and it will happen. Yeah, I do believe that, definitely. It's definitely there. It's in the horizon. We just have to stay together, work towards the same goals. With anything, you know, who can shout the loudest? So we just have to keep shouting as loud as we can. And one of the other things I hear consistently from talking to people is there's that kind of, I wouldn't say disparity, but the younger end of the business don't really seem to kind of come together with those guys who have been around for a minute, have a little bit more experience, have a little bit of knowledge. Do you think that's the case? And if so, what should we be doing about that? Because I think... Yeah, I mean, it is a bit of the case and we spoke about it. And so we've talked of bringing that younger generation in within what we're doing and even having them as part of what we're doing as well and getting their input and hearing from them the different things that they feel need to be changed. So yeah, we've noticed it, we've addressed it and we're acting on it uh, as we speak. But you're right, there has been a little bit of separation between those two entities. So let's move away from that and talk about where you're at now, what you're doing now and the acts that you're working with and all the other great things that are happening. Tell us about now. Tell us about Aaron Hercules, the 2023 edition. Well, the 2023 edition is that I'm currently working on a, a few projects. I have a young jazz artist called Tara Lilly, who's from the Peckham jazz scene she's great and she's doing some great things we just supported ray at the royal albert hall which was uh pretty special she's working on a new album and um, which will drop next year she's toured all this summer all the festivals did three days at glastonbury so yeah it's been good for her i'm working on two tv projects one called uh, rewind selector which is an insight into the sub-genres of the reggae music. Um, and it covers all those genres from lovers rock, sound system, dub, to modern day, and the influence that it has on today's music as well, which is a big thing. So it's kind of educational as well. Sounds as, great. It yeah. Sounds incredible. And then uh, there's a collective that I work with called Last Night in Paris, and they have an incredible TV series that we're working on and it's literally all i'll say it's stranger things meets <laughs> top boy yeah. right okay yeah that's that's, <laughs> that's quite a mashup right right there that's a mad hybrid it's yeah it, it's a proper mashup but it's incredible 
I don't want to say too much because um, it, right. it's sci-fi, but it is, yeah, it's incredible. So I'm working on that. Um, I have a songwriter by the name of Dante Johnson, who's signed to a Chinese um, publishing company, Imatep, which goes for Sony, and he's doing some crazy things. Um, I have an artist called Dido uh, Wilson, who sounds a bit like an early Amy, what's what Darker said, uh, early Amy meets Corin Bailey Ray, but hey. So she's about, she just did a Mahalia Presents, which blew everyone away. And then I've dabbling back into football. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Only because the rules have changed. And so now the people that had original license from 2007, 8, 9, it's reverting back to that because we had a period where Slet Platter, who was the president of FIFA, he eliminated the license agent because he felt not enough deals was done by agents. It was done with lawyers and, and family members. But there was a body of agents that thought it was crazy to put intermediaries in because then it means everyone and their auntie could be an agent, but not understand the rules and didn't do an exam or anything. Yeah. Because I did an exam and passed the exam and stuff. So from the 1st of October, the new license applies. So all the people that are intermediary could no longer be an agent. They would have to go and sit an exam. But because I already set an exam, I automatically get- uh, so You're exempt from I'm that. Exempt and I get a license. So yeah, FIFA emailed me and saying, this is your license number, congratulations, et cetera, et cetera. So because of that, it makes it a, a, a safer, slightly safer playing field because then it's people who understand the game and the rules of it. So yeah, so I'm, I'm getting back into that because I have a colleague of mine who works with the academy in Africa and one in Nigeria and one in Senegal, I believe. And we're bringing through some great talent. So I'm back into that world. I'm also doing a few projects with Mark Williams. We've worked together in the past and it's been very successful and fruitful. And we've had a few top five singles, etc. So it was just a natural thing for us to team up and work together and deliver some exciting projects. So watch this space, some crazy talent coming to your airwaves and streaming platforms very soon. Are you still enjoying it as much as you did when you first started? What, the music management? Being in the business. Sometimes it pisses me off. What are the things that grind your gears? Tell us, what are the things that you kind of go, you know, what I just... I just think there's not enough development or s opportunities or space for emerging artists. I just, it's just, and it's all about numbers. And why is TikTok dictating who's talented and who's not? Anyway, don't even get me started on this subject. Because <laughs> it just jars me every time I think about it. We have a thing called ears that's on the side of our heads. And that's where we listen to sound and music. Why is that redundant now? Why is that not happening? Why are we looking at figures? It's always to do about figures. There was never that before. No. When Prince and Marvin and Curtis, all these people, figures, yeah. it was about the songs and the way that they crafted those songs, the melodies, the lyrics, instrumentation. It's just so much. And I feel we're losing that. I don't know. I could be wrong, but I feel we might be losing that. No, listen, I think it's a really valid point. And listen, you and I are 
of a similar vintage. And it's been interesting to see the way that it was always about the music. It was always about that propensity to take risk. You know, whenever you signed anything, you signed it because you loved it and you felt you personally as an A&R guy or as a manager felt they had the opportunity to do well, but you ultimately loved it. You know, what's happened, numbers are seemingly all about minimising risk, right? They're all about trying to kind of go, there's already a wave here. I'm going to try and surf it and hopefully mm. it will carry me to shore. I'm hoping that that circle is going to change. And you talk to a few of the guys, there definitely seems to be a sense that they want to try and get back to the days of kind of going, you know what, if we like this, we're going to sign it and we're going to live with it. I think the whole thing about TikTok and the growth of social media and how that's impacting on artists' careers and how they grow in their trajectory, man, we should get together on a separate podcast with a few other brothers and talk about that one. I am hearing what you just said. I am hearing that one or two labels are just quite excited about artists that has no presence on any platform but they just love what they hear or love what they've seen if they went to like a showcase or, or watch someone at rehearsal. So if that's the change, then that'd be great. Because otherwise it's just the same people just going round and round and round and round. And the new ones are just not able to come through. And there's so much talent out there. So much. You know, I mean, there is there's a crazy amount of talent out there that just need the opportunity. So a couple of things before we kind of thank you for your time. I mean, firstly, if you could kind of go back and turn back the clock. Is there anything, or is there one thing that you think you would do differently? Yeah, I'd own my masters. <laughs> <laughs> but all joking aside, um, I wish I did. Because we weren't, we weren't taught that. And I no. wasn't taught that when I was younger. But I'm taught that now from lawyers and various people. And that's experience, right? We learn through experience. Yeah, we definitely do. Ownership is key, I think. And that's kind of, I guess, where I felt I went a bit wrong. Yeah, there's other minor things, but that's probably the biggest for me. And listen, there's still plenty of life in you as yet. But, you know, if you've got one remaining ambition in this business, you know, what is it that you have yet to achieve? Wow, that's a good one. I've done a lot, really. So I'm not sitting here moaning and whatever. I, um, yeah, it would have been nice to have my own record label, possibly. Right. Um, but so is that still an ambition? Um, yes, it is an ambition. It is an ambition because I get so much stuff sent to me and so much good stuff, but I just don't have a platform to put it out on, really. Well, you know what, man? Listen, there's still plenty of time yet. And given the amount of things that you're involved with and the amount of people that we both know, I'm sure that you can make it happen. But I've got to say, it's, you know, so we've been around a minute. It's been a pleasure to share your journey and have our paths crossed across the way. But Aaron Hercules, publisher, manager, and a multitude of many other things. Bless you for spending some time with us to kind of discuss your life and your career on the Did You Know podcast. Bless you, brother. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on, Adrian. This is really key podcast and I'm going to shout and scream about it to everyone because it's important. And just remember the title, Did You Know? I'm Adrian Sykes and this was Did You Know? A Downstreet production. Our thanks to Aaron for sharing his story and to my partner in crime and true pioneer, Danny D. Thanks also to Sean Springer, to our producer, Enkin Hassan, to Ella Ruby on the socials, and to Vega Brothers for our theme music. 
Thanks also to Dave Roberts and Tim Ingham at MBW for their support. You can now apply to be mentored by the guests of the Did You Know podcast. Please check out the show's website, www.didyouknowpodcast.com for all the information. Did You Know is available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure that you subscribe to never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. And make sure that you don't miss the final episode in this series of Did You Know, where we'll be talking to Natasha Mann, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Universal Music, about her journey and career to date. I think there's undoubtedly a lot of women in the industry who are still now feeling they have to choose. Either they're successful in the music industry or they can have kids. And I think that's utterly, utterly miserable. And I want to do everything in my power to try and change that. This was Did You Know? Until the next time.